Gracious Father, we thank you for today and for the privilege that we have in this country of gathering together like this. We thank you for your providence in our life, for the guidance that you have supplied, and for the provisions that you have given to us that make our life comfortable. We pray that we would never, ever take this for granted. May we realize that it is a result of your goodness and faithfulness to each of us. We ask our Father for those who are suffering the ravages of war in Ukraine. We pray that the wisdom that you can give in these situations will be abundant. And we ask our Father as well that the leaders of our country would have a large measure of wisdom as they determine how to be involved. We pray that this day will be a day that you use in our life. We thank you for this opportunity. May the Spirit of God minister to us throughout all of the activities through the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before we get started in what I have uh, for today, uh, let me, if I may, just mention something that's kind of interesting. And I don't know whether this is providential or what or not, but you remember probably two or three. Do y'all y'all know who these people are? These <laughs> Can you tell they have this kind of glow about their face? Can mm -hmm. you just imagine what they've been doing? All right, anyway, uh, I'll stop embarrassing them. But anyway, a couple weeks ago, I talked to you about the origination of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, do you remember the, the mine in the Sinai Peninsula? Does anybody remember the name of it? Come on, don't let me down. Cave 24. Huh? Cave 24. No, 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 that's another, that's another archeological. All right. Okay, here it is. Uh-oh. Huh? I thought I'd find it, but. Sarah, Sarah Ballet. Sarah Beth Elkadam. That is a turquoise mine in, uh, in the Sinai Peninsula, and it is uh, among some of the earliest inscriptions that we have of the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew alphabet. Well, oddly enough, I got uh, a pamphlet, uh, a magazine this week uh, called The Bible and the Spade. It is an archaeological journal. And lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, what really is interesting is a brief history of the alphabetic script. And he reinforces exactly what I told you. So he's not too far off. No. <laughs> but he has a very interesting theory. Let me give it to you real quick before we dive into the subject for today. You remember I mentioned to you that if the Bible had been written in Egyptian hieroglyphics, because of all the symbols of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, the Bible would probably be, have to be about that thick because so many symbols. And what happened is there's nothing written down in any kind of a scroll until everything is reduced to an alphabet of 22, 
23 letters or something of that nature. And then, of course, you have the vowel points underneath that, like we have in Hebrew. It's the theory of this particular individual who is a master's grad and, and he's got a PhD from a couple other schools. It is his particular theory that when Jacob took his family to Egypt and they relocated from the land of Israel down to Egypt under the tutelage of Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt at the time, that what happened is the family was relocated to Goshen. Joseph had two sons. You remember what their names were? Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh. Now they grew up in Egypt and they would have known Egyptian hieroglyphics because that's where they were born and raised. However, when Jacob brought his family down there, they did not know Egyptian hieroglyphics, so how in the world were they going to be able to acclimate to the culture? In Genesis chapter 47 and chapter 48, there are a couple verses that indicate that what Joseph did is he brought his two sons to live with the people of Jacob and his family to Goshen. And it is his particular theory that rather than learn Egyptian hieroglyphics so that they could acclimate to the culture, Joseph's two sons formulated the original Hebrew alphabet. Now, the interesting thing about that is scholarship across the board is now suggesting that whereas before the alphabet originated from the Phoenicians, they are now acknowledging because of the early script that we have at Sarabet el Qadim, the alphabet was probably originating by the Jewish people at Sarabet el Qadim. And these slaves who were working in this mine knew the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew alphabet, which was formulated by Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's an interesting theory. Interesting theory. So, that's what he says. It, it, it's fat, to me, it's fascinating. Where, where is Phoenicia? Phoenicia is north of Israel. And the reason the ancient uh, scholar, or the scholars are suggesting that the alphabet uh, originated from Phoenicia is the Phoenicians were seagoing people, and they would have access to all of the countries, and so they are thinking, well, they would have formulated the alphabet so that they could interact with all of these other countries. This guy is suggesting, nope, the Hebrew alphabet and the alphabets across the board in Europe and the Middle East all originated with the Hebrews, which so is really... Is saying that that is the earliest known example of alphabetic writing? That's so exactly right. That, is the that has been found to date, right. 
which is really kind of interesting. All right, now, that took longer than I thought, so we will <laughs> dive in. That wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> hey, and I took your suggestion, David. What? Can I pass well, that now, magazine now over now? Oh. There you go. Well, you, you just woke it up. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Well, it was there for a second. Where are we here? It was. No dancing in church. Oh. Low battery? No. No, I don't know what's going on. I just changed this battery. No, it's not. Well, we do have a computer. Uh, there, there you go. There. Oh. All right, yeah. here we go. Oh. The rise of, uh, of uh, the nation of Israel in the 20th century. I'm leaving archaeology. I'm bouncing ahead 2,500 years to the 20th century and the late 1800s, all right? The 19th century. So here we go. Now, this to me is kind of fascinating. <laughs> Much as I hate to do this, this is the way we're going to have to do it. <laughs> Would you help me? I don't know what's going on. You need to be on. Is that? <laughs> The guy's got magic fingers, because I don't. All right, does that mean this will work too? Nope. All right, we're heading in the wrong direction. All right, the rise of the 20th century. Let me talk for just a minute about the people that possess the land of Israel. As many of you know, during the time of the uh, New Testament, it was the Romans who controlled the land. And the Jews were basically serfs or subjected to the Roman government. And then what happened in 70 AD is the under Titus, the Jews were subjected to the Romans in such a way that the temple was destroyed Jerusalem was destroyed. You probably know the story of Masada, whereby the, the, there were some holdouts down there, and Masada was wiped out. Everybody committed suicide and so forth. Now, what happened as a result of that is that there was a dispersion of the Jewish people from the land of Israel, and they dispersed literally all over Europe. Now, this did not happen immediately, but they realized as a result of the persecution that was taking place in the land of Israel that the only way to survive is to get out of Israel as much as possible. This did not happen among everybody. It did not happen among all the Jewish, but it happened among most of them. So what you have 
is various groups of people, because of the void of Jewish people in the land of Israel, they would come in and uh, take control. The Byzantine era. The Byzantine era is basically the eastern half of the old Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire fell, the Byzantines came in under the area of, uh, of Turkey and, and Constantinople and so forth. They came down and started controlling this area. Then after the Byzantine era, you have the Arab era. And that is, of course, when the Islamic faith, if you want to call it that, had its rise. And the Arabs like to say, well, the Islamic faith uh, under Muhammad began to take control. And they did, because the uh, Dome of the Rock originated during this particular time right here. And so then you had the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire under the Turkish, uh, the nation of Turkey, began to take control. And the interesting thing that we see with regard to the Ottoman Empire is that this is the total control area of the Ottoman Empire. Now, what is happening? At the conclusion of the Ottoman Empire, and the conclusion of the Ottoman Empire came at the conclusion of World War I. And uh, if you know any history about the World War, World War I, mostly Europe was involved, and it was Britain, United States, other countries that were on the other side, and then of course a lot of this other stuff on this side. What you have during this time period is God beginning to change the hearts and minds of individuals, mostly in Britain and mostly in the United States regarding the Jewish people. Because what was happening during this Ottoman Empire is that the Jews were being persecuted virtually every place the Ottoman empire existed and the jews were uh there was just a a rise if you please in what you might call anti-jewish anti-jewish uh sentiment or anti-semitic activity therefore god raised up a man by the name of uh i gotta get my glasses on uh william blackstone uh, William Blackstone was an individual who was influenced by D.L. Moody. He was also influenced by John Nelson Darby, who is basically the founder of 20th century or, or modern-day dispensational thought. That doesn't mean that dispensationalism was not around prior to his time, but he is the one that kind of made it uh, a... a a system of thought with regard to interpreting the Bible primarily because he interpreted the Bible literally. That's important. Then you had this man writing a book in the late 1800s entitled Jesus is Coming. This was a trained layman, a self-taught layman, excuse me, who just studied the Bible. And he saw over and over in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, the fact that God was not 
finished with Israel. The two most popular attitudes toward Israel today and judgment are preterism and replacement theology. Do all of you know what preterism is? None of you? Preterism basically comes from a Latin word, preter, which means past, and it's basically saying virtually all prophecies re with regard to judgment and Israel have already taken place when Jerusalem was destroyed way back in 70 AD. Replacement theology. How many of you know what replacement theology is? Are a couple of you. Replacement theology basically says that God has completely and totally set aside all of his promises to Israel. And he is now fulfilling all of the promises to Israel through the church. And they are basically saying the church is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. There's only one problem with that. Well, there's more than one problem. Israel is spelled I-S-R-A-E-L, and church is spelled C-H-U-R-C-H. <laughs> that, that's a problem, because we're talking about two distinct different people. All right, now, Blackstone started reading through the Bible, and he said, there is a future for Israel. And so he visited the land of Israel. He gathered 413 signatures per, to promote the restorations of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Tommy Ice, who is the, uh, he is the head of the Pre-Trib Rapture Research Conference that I try to attend almost every year, has suggested that Blackstone was the Hal Lindsey of the late 1800s. Do all of you remember Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth? It was just a resurrection. It was a revival of prophecy and the place Israel has. These 413 signatures that he got, the thing that's interesting about that is he had the signature of John D. Rockefeller, he had the signature of J.P. Morgan. He had the signature of Cyrus McCormick, all leading financial gurus. He had the signature as signatures of half of the Supreme Court. He had the signatures of many senators, many ministers, 413 of them all together. All of these people recognized that Israel needed a homeland. Why? Because anti-Semitism was just raging throughout the world. Wherever Jews went, they didn't want them there. Moving on. At the same time, a fellow named Rothschilds. Now, that's a common name. The Rothschilds were people who were in the banking industry. The Rothschilds also were Germans. Uh, Jewish uh, people who lived in the area of France. With their enormous wealth, what the Rothschilds family started to do was to go to the land of Israel and buy parcels of land. And in these parcels of land, they started setting up 
in the early, early stages, what was called a kibbutz. How many of you ever heard that word before? All right, a kibbutz is basically a plot of land where 15, 20, 100 people would live and they would specialize in one kind of industry. It would be agricultural, it would be industrial, but they would all come and they would, they would put all of their efforts into one thing. For example, cattle rearing, grains, chocolate, uh, any, any kind of commodity. And then among the kibbutz, they would trade these things. Now, the important thing to realize is that the Arabs, even to this day, say that the Jews came in and stole their land. That is simply not true. Every parcel of land the Jewish people have was bought at top dollar over the span of the 20th century. Every single parcel of land. Now, the interesting thing is this land acquisition is even taking place today. There is a fund even today where people are contributing to buy more and more land from the Arab people. And the Arab people are taking it. They're giving up their land. And then there are outsiders that are saying, oh, the Jews are stealing all the land. No, they're buying it. They're purchasing it. So let's move on a little bit. Then there is a fella who at the exact same time named Theodore Herschel. Theodore Herschel is the father of modern Zionism. And the interesting thing is he established the first Zionist Congress and he requested, even though he died almost 50 years prior to the establishment of the nation of Israel, he requested that his remains be buried in the land of Israel. And to this day, to this day, there is a Herzl monument or a Herzl uh, cemetery, and his re remains are there. Now, another thing, and I'm moving really fast, and I'm sorry about that. Theodore Herzl established a magazine called The Jewish State, calling for the Jewish state to solve the growing problem of anti-Semitism. The first Zionist Congress discussed plans to establish the Jewish state in Palestine. Political Zionism begins. And when did that happen? It started right at the beginning of the 20th century. So you have these individuals and this movement, this attitude because of the hostility toward the Jewish people they recognize we've got to do something. And these, most of these people were Jewish or sympathetic Jewish people that were very, very involved in Bible study. That's important to realize. Another thing that we discover about Theodore Herzl, and this is just kind of a review, uh, this first Zionist Congress was held in uh, Basel, Switzerland, and this bottom couple lines are interesting. Fulfilled 50 years later and 11 months later, 50 years and 11 months later, who would have believed it would take two world wars and a holocaust to bring that about? And that, that to me is a very, very interesting point. Now, there's something I would like for you to keep 
aware of. Uh, people who come to the Bible say, wait a minute, is there any biblical proof for this? Well, I would like for you to notice these statements. Few Christians believed it in 1900. Replacement theology had taught most that the church had been replaced by Israel. And then you have in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through chapter 30. If you've ever read that, you're familiar with it. That is the curses and the blessings that Moses declared to the children of Israel just prior to entering into the promised land. And the interesting thing about it is that when you read through those curses, God says, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have crops. You're going to sit secure in the land, the whole thing. If you disobey, even though you own the land that I am giving to you, you are going to be taken from the land, and you are not going to know my blessing. <coughs> the verse I want you to notice closely is chapter 11 of Isaiah. And if you have your Bible, I would like for you to turn it to Isaiah chapter 11 and just notice a very, very interesting statement in that, uh, in that chapter. Isaiah chapter 11 I'm looking specifically, starting with verse 10. Then it will come about in that day that the nation will retort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with the hand the remnant of his people who will remain from, and then he lists a whole bunch of different countries. And then right down at the very bottom of verse 12, he says, from the four corners of the earth. Now, the interesting thing about this is set this in context. Isaiah lived right about the time the north was just about ready to be carried away into captivity. And Isaiah predicts in the last half of Isaiah chapter 40, from chapter 40 through chapter 66, that after the captivity, the Israelites are going to come back to their land from the Babylonian captivity. So I am going to suggest, and it's not just me. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who we have had here, this is his take on it, and it has literally been a take that has been adopted by many, many premillennialists and pre-tribulationalist people. The first return was at the conclusion of the captivity of Babylon. Where did they come from when they came back from this first captivity? What country? Babylon, Babylon, all right? Then you have the second time. And a lot of people are thinking, the first one was the return from Babylon. The second time is right here during the present day. Now the interesting thing that we have about that is that when the Jewish people were dispersed from the land of Israel. 
during the Roman seizure of Jerusalem, temple destroyed, the whole land of Israel decimated, they scattered everywhere. Has there been a regathering on the part of Israel since the first century? Nothing. Nothing for almost 2,000 years. And what is happening today? The Jews are going back to the land. Now, let me be cautious. I am in no way suggesting that what we see today is a fulfillment of prophecy. I'm not suggesting that, but I was talking to Doug about this, and he was telling me that uh, when he was at Dallas Seminary, and I remember Dr. Walford saying this very same thing, Dr. Walford would say, God is just rearranging the furniture. He's setting the stage, perhaps, for this to happen. How did he do that? Well, let's go on. You have the Ottoman Empire, then you have the British Empire. At the conclusion of the First World War, the British government wiped out the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans were primarily the Muslim-controlled area of Turkey and virtually all of the area around the Mediterranean Sea. What happens then? is that a man by the name of Balfour. If you don't remember anything else this morning, remember Balfour, all right? Balfour was originally a conservative prime minister of Great Britain in the early part of the 20th century. Approximately 15 years later, he is now the foreign secretary in Britain, and he makes a statement based on, number one, what the British cabinet decided, what the British government decided, and the timing of this particular statement is interesting because notice closely who it is to and the date of it. It is November 2nd, 1917. And most people come along and they say, this letter is perhaps the most important letter ever written since the New Testament era. Now the reason they say that is, how many of you remember uh, who Theresa May is? Anybody? Who was the Prime Minister of Britain just before the current Prime Minister? Remember, Theresa May. On the 100th anniversary, of this letter, Theresa May declared right here, perhaps this is the most important letter since the New Testament era. And notice closely what it says. It is written to Earl Rothschilds, who is, number one, a Jew, very, very involved in purchasing property in the land of Israel. He says this, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspiration, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. Then it goes on. 
His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish community in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Now what is happening? Great Britain recognizes that Jews need a place. And by the way, this particular declaration was also approved by the government in the United States before they put it in print. And the, the uh, president at the time was a man by the name of Woodrow Wilson. And he approved it as well as the government. Now, we go on a little bit further. Notice the date again. General Allenby. You've all heard of the Allenby Bridge between Israel and Jordan. That dates back to this era. General uh, of British Empire, whose forces defeated the Ottoman Empire and secured the land of Egypt, Palestine, Syria. Then, notice closely, you remember when the Balfour Declaration was printed or declared? A little over a month before this date, Allenby, a Christian Zionist, entered the city of Jerusalem through the Jaffa Gate. He dismounted from his horse and humbly entered the city. What just happened? What just happened? He didn't go charging in, but because he was a born-again believer and a Zionist, he recognized that things were changing, that God would using him to hopefully put the Jews in a status, in a position where they would eventually get their land back after what? Almost 2,000 years. So, moving on a little bit, remember I told you that Rothschilds established kibbutz? Uh, to date, in the early times, there were over 200 different kibbutz, and this is the areas with all these dots where these different individual kibbutz were. These people owned the land. They were involved in agriculture and industry, and every single one of these interchanged with each other. And even to this day, there are kibbutz in Israel where groups of people gather together and they specialize in one thing. Uh, couple times that I have visited Israel, we have stayed in a kibbutz right at the very bottom of the uh, Sea of Galilee called uh, Kibbutz Mahagan. You remember that, dearie? Uh, very, very nice place. And these people specialize in a resort town, a resort community. Very, very fascinating. Now, what happened? Here you have the Balfour Declaration in November of 1917, you have General Allenby coming into the land a month later at the conclusion of World War I. Then nothing happens except Jews are starting to go back to Israel and they are starting to populate the land of Israel. But what happens is the German Holocaust. 
And under Germany, it was a systematic, systematic attempt to rid the world of Jewish people. And of course, he called this the final solution and the special treatment that the Jews had to, uh, to go through because the German people considered the Jewish people, not all Germans, an inferior race. I'll never forget the first time I, uh, I heard this. Who do you think influenced Adolf Hitler to do this? Charles Darwin. Mm. <laughs> Charles Darwin. No, well, that, that may have been, but it'll even shock you, shock you more who uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, hero was. You know, Jesse, you should know this. Probably. <laughs> Martin Luther. Well, Martin Luther, because Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. And Martin Luther was also replacement theology. And one of the reasons Adolf Hitler did what he did is because of the strong feelings of Martin Luther as anti-Jewish. Why? They crucified Christ. Now, it doesn't make sense to us, because all that was all part of the plan of God. But that's where the Holocaust came from. The systematic expulsion and extinction of Jewish people. And of course, you are well aware of the fact that over six million people were totally and completely exterminated. From the beginning of the 20th century to 1945, this is the immigration of the Jews to the land of Palestine. Now, I might just mention, you'll notice that I have used the term Israel to describe the land as opposed to Palestine. That is intentional on my part because the term Palestine was given the name of that land during the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire wanted to obliterate the thinking that Israel was a country. So they changed the name to Palestine after the Philistines. And that's, that's very important. So I don't call it Palestine. A lot of people don't call it Palestine because that was a name given, it, given to it by a group of people that wanted to exterminate the Jews. The name Israel is the right title for the land. All right, so people come back to Israel and boatloads, and there's been, I forget what the title of the movie was uh, that talked about this. Does, do any of you remember? Exodus. Yeah, there you go, all right. Uh, and that, it describes this uh, time period. Now, please notice the sequence. What you've got is Blackstone writing his book, Jesus is Coming. You have Rothschilds purchasing land. You have Theodore Herzl, right there at the beginning of the 20th century, stating the Jews need to have their own land because of the anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish attitude. Then you have General Allenby and the Balfour Declaration. And the stage is now set. 
The only problem is nothing happened for the next 45 years or 40 years. And then you have this fella. <clears throat> Kayim Weissman, Russian-born Jew, the third of 15 children, drain chemist and early Zionist leader. <clears throat> You'll love this next statement. Developed acetone butanol ethanol fermentation process. Does anybody know what that means? Russ. It, <laughs> I'm going to tell you in a minute, but it has virtually revolutionized everything. Let's go to the next one. Leading spokesman for U.S. to recognize Israel as a nation. First president of the new nation of Israel. The second thing right here met with enormous favor with the British government. By the way, if you look closely, there's Keisman, second from your right. Who's the guy standing next to him? Einstein. Who? Einstein. Albert Einstein. You know, he, he ran around with some pretty smart people. All right? Is he Jewish? Yes. 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 Now, the other interesting thing is the second or the third thing was he invented smokeless gunpowder and it virtually revolutionized war because people could now shoot their gun and you've seen pictures of the 1800s. They would shoot their gun and smoke would come out of the barrel. It's a dead giveaway as to where the bullet came from. It's a dead giveaway. This guy invented smokeless propellant or smokeless gunpowder. And of course, thank goodness, even today, we benefit from this guy right here. His favor with the Jewish government was absolutely astounding as a result of that, because at that point, the British government had the benefit. All right, so now, after World War II, the favor of the world toward Jewish people rose significantly. And the reason for that was the Holocaust. People, decent people around the world recognized that was an atrocity that was just unconscionable. And so the United Nations, which had been formed I'm not promoting the United Nations, I'm just reporting. The United Nations decided to have a uh, little gathering, and we discover that the uh, resolution 181 declared that the land of Israel would be partitioned off between Israel and the Arabs. Now, I'm not going to talk about the, the result of all that, but this is one of the very few resolutions that the Security Council voted on unanimously. Now, obviously, the Arabs were not part of the Security Council. They didn't vote for it, but the main Security Council voted unanimously to make this happen. And of course, it did. And so Palestine is partitioned off, or Israel is partitioned off by the, the United Nations. They recognize it. 
Shortly after that period of time, Israel declares itself a state. If part of the land of Israel has been partitioned off to us, we're going to establish a state. So there you have David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, makes the declaration that we are now an official state. By the way, whose picture is up there above? Who? Herzl. Theodore Herzl. He's been dead for 40 years. But they recognize that he was the founder of this whole movement. So you've got uh, David Ben-Gurion doing this, and the New York Times makes the statement. So you've got a situation where Kyan Wiseman is the first president, David Ben-Gurion the first prime minister. I think, well, all right, that's all I'll go. Any comments or questions? We are out of time. Well, that period of time, 1902, the end of the First World War, they didn't come back to the land because it was swamps. That's exactly right. The Jews, the Jews have absolutely renovated the land. The whole area along the coast of the Mediterranean was swampland. And they, they, they figured out ways to, uh, to change the whole the structure swamp. of it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right on top of it. Yes, Bob. I have read that people expected the surrounding Arab countries to annihilate Israel. That's exactly. After it was formed. I am going. I'm going next week. Russ is going to be taking the Sunday school class. I'm going to be up in Pinedale, Wyoming, preaching. But the Sunday after that, I want to talk about the conflicts from the time uh, they became a state until the present. And I want to talk about the Sinai War, the Six Day War, and a couple things like that, just to give you a, a flavor of where things are. By the way, uh, and I, I failed to mention this, and our time is gone. But uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, was the previous prime minister of Israel, wrote a book entitled Place Among the Nations. And Benjamin Netanyahu credits, credits Blackstone, that, that layman right at the very beginning, he credits Blackstone with starting this entire process. And of course, Blackstone was a Zionist and a born-again believer. Yes, Jess. You had said that uh, it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. I thought in the dispensational mindset, it absolutely is a fulfillment of prophecy. No, we don't say it's a fulfillment of prophecy. We say, with caution, God may be using this, but we do not say dogmatically that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. We say God may be setting the stage or arranging the furniture. That's so, as far as we go. Like this is a gathering of Jews in the land, like Isaiah 11 says, but there could be a future idea that, that really culminates it. A re uh, uh, yes. Okay. But here, here's the thing that makes this so interesting. After 2,000 years, you had the resurrection of the nation, a reestablishment of a nation, and you have the Jewish people flooding back to the land of Israel. 
So it may well be we are in the end times, but you are crazy if you stand up and say, this is it. We could hope. We could hope, but we don't want to say dogmatically. Unless any of, if, Dave, are you ready to say dogmatically? Well, you know, then after you say that, you can say Christ is coming such and such a day. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Hey, thank you, folks. I appreciate it. Uh, next week, Russ has the floor. <laughs> <laughs>